We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Whoa, John Alanto. Don Palumbo. How are you? Oh man, I'm I'm really good and I am equally excited and mortified to be here today because this story is a nightmare. Oh boy. What a yeah. what a way to kick it off. Big thanks to everyone who has taken the time out of their busy lives to rate and review Midwest Murder on iTunes. The comments, feedback, and support is really uplifting for us. It motivates us, and it helps us get more recognition in the world, which we really appreciate. Don, what are folks saying these days about Midwest Murder? Well, oh, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll bring you guys into the joke that I'm laughing at. Sorry. <laughs> Don just got jokes. <laughs> Go to Galley. Five stars. Saved my marriage. See, that's what made me giggle. <laughs> <laughs> Saved my marriage. Wow. Honestly, I could not stand another Bigfoot podcast while driving with my husband. I'm so thankful we stumbled upon Midwest Murder. We both love it. We get in the car and no longer argue about what to listen to. Thanks. No more therapy. That's pretty amazing. And um, it was a winky face emoji oh, at the end. Yes. Big shout out. Thanks. Yes. Go to Galley. We're saving marriages, Don. We are, I guess. And, you know, stick with therapy. Therapy's always good. Um, then also five stars, East Coast fan, a native to Minot, North Dakota. I now live in Dover, Delaware. As sad and terrifying as these cases are, you guys take me home, especially with the accents and shots, crossroads, shout outs. We don't have accents. Jeez. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, love listening to Midwest Murder. I recommend you guys to coworkers, friends, neighbors, etc. Just know you have fans on the East Coast as well. Well, thank you, East I'm, Coast fan. I'm pretty tingly after yeah. that one. Thank you very much for, again, for the kind words. Guys, if you're listening, please head on over to iTunes. Drop us a review. We really do appreciate that. It, it helps things out a lot. Big shout out today to our sponsor, Shots Crossroads, which I love all the references to shots that are coming through in our reviews. And it really, to me, it tells you that our truck stop in Minot is not like other truck stops. I've been to corporate chain truck stops. Their food is not as good. They they the same. They're just not the same. Nope. Shots Crossroads, it's a legendary landmark right here in Minot. They've been part of the North Dakota family for two generations, family owned and operated. I've got friends whose first job was at Shots Crossroads. Really? You know, yeah, when they I were do. when they were yeah. 14, 15, I think maybe 15-ish. It feels like freshman year. Those same friends, I think Shots was also like their ninth job. So sure. yeah. <laughs> you know right. what goes right. what goes around comes around. Right. They're great. We love we love shots. Uh, of, of course, the ranch, the pie. The crinkle fries. The crinkle fries, the 24-7 service, open 365 days a year. Hey, for some families, this is this is where they might go for uh, a turkey dinner. Yes, they're, right. they're open. They're open for you. 24-7. We really do appreciate them. Of course, they have online ordering, so 
don't be afraid to utilize technology and order ahead of time. If you're in a rush and you're going to shots, you can pick it up. You can take it to go. It's easy. Even order a mobile gift certificate. Bam. Mobile gift certificates. To get somebody some crinkle fries. Hint, hint. Hint. Crispy crinkle fries. Thank you. (laughs) We're also welcoming a new sponsor today. And this one is very near and dear to our hearts. It's an organization that has been mentioned and discussed in previous episodes, including the Omar Calmio case, which was episode nine. And today we're sponsored in part also by the domestic violence, the domestic violence crisis center in Minot. That's the DVCC Minot. And really they, they, they just, they want to bring an important message to everybody that if somebody that you know is in danger, the fact is these behaviors are not going to go away alone. They only escalate. They, they really if do. You have no action. Yes, they really do only escalate. And it is possible. Preventative, preventative prevention is possible. Mm-hmm. So if you or someone you know is facing a, a domestic violence situation, there is is a safe place for you. There is people that you can talk to. There are resources, even if you don't want to go so far as to maybe get like a protection order, or if you are just a friend who is concerned and you've exhausted all of your resources, you as that friend or family member, because frankly, most people in a domestic situation, they're going to reach out to a close friend or family member way before they make a call to some some a place like the DVCC. Now, if you need to make that call, the crisis line in for for the DVCC Minot is 701-857-2200. That's 701-857-2200. If you or someone you know needs to make a call to the Domestic Violence Crisis Center in Minot, you can also check out the website. It's courageforchange.org. That's courageforchange.org. And just remember, you're not alone. You're not alone. There's always resources. Guys, there's three homicides in Minot this year. They're all women. Two of them are confirmed as being domestic violence situations. So I want to emphasize again, wherever you are, these behaviors do not go away alone. There is a place for you to go. Please call your domestic violence crisis center. Get help. Get safe. If you're stuck in a cycle of violence, it's not going to change by itself. Big thank you again to uh, DVCC Minot for sponsoring this episode of Midwest Murder. Thank you. Also, of course, shout outs to Eric Michael Anderson for recording our excellent intro music to CJ Wynn for her assistance in writing our intro and to our graphic designer with the recent name change. Pop and dot. Pop and dot. Folks, before this story begins, this is your listener discretion and advisory. It's not something we normally do. It's in the intro that we don't shy away from the gory details. And of course, this episode today will be uh, no exception to that rule. But I want to warn everybody that this episode does depict atrocious violence, including sexual violence to children. That is your listener discretion. Turn those one off in the car with the kids. Definitely. Yeah. Our story today spans decades. It begins in the 60s. The 60s, of course, dominated by the Vietnam War, civil rights protests. The 60s also saw the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the U.S. president, as well as Martin Luther King. There was the Cuban Missile Crisis, and it did end on a good note when the first man landed on the moon. And, of course, the Beatles. We got the Beatles in the 70s pretty important, or in the 60s, 60s, excuse me. 64. Through the 70s, an era when the women's rights, gay rights, and environmental movements competed with the Watergate scandal, the energy crisis, the Vietnam War was fighting for the world's attention, 
The 70s also saw the rise and fall of the world's greatest rock band, Led Zeppelin, and Star Wars was released in 1977. Through the 80s, well, the 80s saw the collapse of communism, the ending of the Cold War, the rise of Microsoft, IBM, Intel, and Apple started having an impact on our lives. There was the famine in Ethiopia, which gave us the live aid huge epic concert to uh, help feed the starving people. And of course, it was the early beginnings of mobile phones as tech got cheaper and smaller. And then into the 90s, where the technological landscape of the world changed forever with the rise of the internet, the Soviet Union officially collapsed. We also had Ruby Ridge, Waco, the OKC bombings, Columbine, the LA and the LA riots. Man, the 90s They seem like a safer and less violent time, but there were some horrific events through the 90s and also notably the rise of rap music as we know it today, as well as the end of rock music as we knew it then. One through line that never changes through time, that never seems to go away. One that is always present and with us. Murder. Yeah. Seems to be pretty constant. The world as we know it is full of monsters, willfully capable of the worst, most horrendous crimes, rape, torture, mutilation, murder, even cannibalism. When we think of monsters, now these days when we think of monsters, we might think of the energy drink, but traditionally when we think of monsters, our thoughts, I think, have been trained a little by popular stories and movies that monsters are creatures, they're aliens, or they're supernatural forces. It's almost always something otherworldly, but in reality, here on planet Earth, in our dimension, monsters are most often men. In fact, statistics overwhelmingly show that men commit more than 80% of all murder. That even seems low to me. Depends on the year, sure. but that's, and it depends, I, I I sourced it in a few places, but 80%, I was shocked actually. I, I just, I, I was, or lower? I think 80, 90%, it's sure. somewhere in there, you know, 85 ish. Yeah. But yeah, according to government data, FBI data, things like that, mm-hmm. 80% of all murder committed by men. Committed by men. Hmm. That's interesting. And on February 15th, 1957, one such monster was born in Worcester, Massachusetts. His name, David Paul Brown. David's parents, Philip and Tyra, lived in a pretty stereotypical upper middle class neighborhood full of gossiping wives and husbands who spent most of their free time in the garage. The state line to Connecticut ran straight down the middle of their road. And just a short walk from their home was a little forest and a nice watering hole referred to by locals as Lake Webster. As a baby... David didn't really like to be touched or held and constantly wanted to be fed. His shrieking cries could only be consoled by being fed, which in turn caused him to gain a lot of weight. He wasn't an active baby, and his father, Philip, was insulted by how small his penis and balls were. He often referred to his son, David, as BB nuts. As a baby? As a baby. Oh, man. You know, I can already see where this is going and I can already Monday morning quarterback this and it makes me so sad. Oh, it's going to go way worse than you think, buddy. I know, man. So there's some belief that David had hydrocephaly as a baby. Hydrocephaly is when excessive spinal fluids build up inside the skull. It's really dangerous for infants whose developing brain is fragile. When he was six months old, 
David got a fever that lasted over four days and spiked as high as 106. Oh, sweet baby. At the hospital, doctors and nurses bathed him in a steel tub with ice water. At the time, high fevers weren't considered much of a problem. We now know high fevers are a major cause of early brain damage, especially those lasting for days on end. A few weeks after the fever, seemingly overnight, Tira noticed one of her son's eyes had changed color from blue to brown. What? So a lot of a lot of times when that happens, there's a belief that you in the womb devoured your potential twin. Oh, really? Yeah, they call it like a chimeric effect. Yeah. Anyways, crazy. When, wait, 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 wait. So that's what causes his eye to change? They don't know for sure, but that that's that just was part of the part of the research that I came across. that was talking about it. Sometimes that is that is why that happens. Hmm. And so it it, hap- it can happen six months after that. Wow, interesting. I'm. We should, I'll do my own research. Sure. That's interesting. <laughs> when, when David was a toddler, the Brown family relocated to Lantana, Florida, where they lived for almost six years before moving back to Massachusetts. Philip, David's father, was a stern disciplinarian, shorter than other men. And kind of an asshole. Oh, seems. yeah, he is. He's kind of a prick. As an airplane mechanic, he struggled to reach all the tall areas of the plane and was often the target of ridicule by his co-workers, which made him feel a sense of inadequacy. Philip also seemed to hate his son, David, and as he got older, that hatred toward his son often turned to violence. More than a few times, Tira had to stop her husband from beating their son with his fists or a thick black strap he called the Garrett Belt. Philip also believed his son to be queer, and the other men at work knew it as well. It disgusted him that his son could be, quote, that way. At age six, David was attacked by a stray boxer. The dog was foaming at the mouth. He was bitten several times in the arm and back before his father chased the animal away with a shovel. Oh, how kind of him. When he was rushed to the ER, doctors had to inject David with a hyperimmune anti-rabies serum, which could potentially cause neurological damage. For two weeks following the attack, he had to have anti-rabies serum injected into his abdomen. Okay, so hang on. I just want to put this together. So he's had two instances that can cause neurological damage or yes. brain damage yes yep wow it's true wow he it, was he was what six right now he's about six almost Sweet seven Pete. okay so it was shortly after the dog attack that david began picking at his skin any piece of loose skin or scab david would pick at it until it bled and then he'd suck the blood telling his mother he enjoyed the salty taste he picked his wounds until they festered the habit was particularly unsettling for his classmates and teachers who called Tira time and again to tell her, figure it out. Your son's doing gross, weird shit in class and nobody likes it. Well, and and it's also, a, you know, questionable behavior, oh, you know, questionable. An, an indicator of it's in the 60s. Some other, they, don't, right. they don't know what's going on yet. Right. right. So just before moving back to Massachusetts in 1964, David invited his five year old neighbor over to play with his new birthday gift, a Ouija board. It can predict the future, David told her. When the little girl came over, Tira answered the door and sent the sweet child downstairs to play with David. Not long after, Tira heard a commotion coming from the basement. As she walked downstairs, she saw her son David first. His face was beet red and his hands were wrapped around the young girl's throat, savagely shaking and choking her. Tira screamed at him, but he didn't stop. She screamed again and again until he finally released his grip on her throat. David then sat there screaming that he hadn't done anything that she put his hands on her throat and made him choke her. 
When Tira later called the girl's mother to check in on her, the woman said, quote, your son is sick. If he was a dog, we'd put him down. As time went on, Philip and Tira found it increasingly difficult to control their son's habitual violence, lying, and stealing. Tira decided if it was best if she became David's constant supervisor and chauffeur. She took David anywhere he whined to go. His tantrums for candy could last for hours, and his appetite never went away. It became a constant job to prevent David from stealing, and even when he was caught, he would never admit to it. Later, in 1965, David took the family phone book and copied down 8,000 names. After making the list, he began writing letters to random families asking to connect with their children. While he did get a few responses, even more parents called Tira to confront her about how odd it was. David was collecting, and it was a pattern he'd repeat again and again throughout his life. What do you mean by collecting? You'll find out. (laughs) So collecting, in this case, it would be the... Uh, forensic behavioral method of collecting. Gotcha. Okay. Right? Like that's that killers do. David loved going places with his mother and he was mischievous. Once during a trip to Sears, a few minutes after ditching Tira, she was paged over the store intercom. Would Miss Brown please come to plumbing immediately? As Tira made her way to plumbing, a large display of toilets came into view and she saw her son, David. Perched on a toilet, pants around his ankles, grunting. He was pooping. David grinned at his mother and loudly demanded toilet paper. Later that night, Philip said, We're going to have real problems with that boy. You mark my word. He's not right in the head. You already have problems, sir. He wanted to give the kid a beating, but Tira stopped him. David was just eight years old at the time. After speaking with their pastor, David's parents decided it was time to let God have his way with their son. At Sunday school, it was clear David was not like the other kids. He interpreted the Bible in his own way and began arguing with the pastors and teachers at the school. One teacher thought David believed that he was put on earth by God himself for a special purpose that only David knew and would not talk to anyone about. School and neighborhood life weren't easy for the obese, peculiar boy. Kids on the bus would often poke fun at one another, typical elementary teasing, but David's jokes were of a different nature, dark and sinister. He'd get real close and whisper so only his target could hear him. He once told a girl that if she didn't do what he wanted, he was going to break into her house in the middle of the night cut up her parents, and throw them in the lake. When he was 12, a horrible sledding accident ripped a 10-inch piece of thigh muscle off David's leg. Philip had been looking for his son and saw the accident as it happened. He made a tourniquet with his belt and rushed his son to the emergency room. ER staff were amazed by David's curiosity about his wound and the absolute lack of any expression of pain. He didn't wince or scream or cry once. And David kept sticking his fingers into the gash and pulling back skin and muscle. He was particularly interested in caressing his femur. As his leg was being sewn up, David loudly sang, In the name of Jesus, all things are possible. I, I, I just got goosebumps. I, I, That's want to hang out with David? Not want to babysit David? Don? No, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. And I, so, as you're reading this, all I can think about is, okay, 
what is the right thing to do with this child other than therapy, you know, but is therapy going to even help this? They didn't have medicine yet. It's pretty scary. Oh my gosh. Oh my what is gosh. the right thing to do with you I, if your kid? I, I don't know. I don't that's know. A, that, that's that that thought is so scary. I don't even want to carry it forward in it, conversation. Yep, like Jesus. Yep, yep, I'm good. There's Let's, no right answer there. There's no yeah. lose, 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 lose. Oh my heavens! David spent the next five weeks in the hospital having skin grafts and physical therapy. The mark would leave a horrendous scar on his right leg, and David absolutely creeped the nurses out. They argued over who had to tend to him. David asked them really invasive and personal questions. He was keenly interested to learn if they had children, particularly boys. He demanded the nurses bring him a playmate, but the nurses felt David wanted something more, that he wanted to inflict pain on someone else. Eventually, David got a wheelchair, and he'd wander into other patients' rooms, quizzing them about their medical conditions, asking to see their surgical scars. The following winter, in January, David was almost 13, He was the biggest kid on the block, weighing over 200 pounds. You couldn't miss him. A six-year-old boy named Bobby loved watching the neighborhood from the window. He observed David many times, but they weren't friends. So it was surprising when David knocked on the door of his house and asked Bobby's mom if he could go sledding. Bobby was excited. David told him, the best place to go sledding is Cemetery Hill. Just follow me. When they reached the top of the icy path, David disappeared with his sled into a group of trees, saying he had to go pee. A few moments later, Bobby heard David calling out for him. When Bobby went looking for David, he found him sitting on top of his sled. And when Bobby got close, David grabbed him and yanked him down onto his sled. Pushing Bobby onto his back, David forced himself on top of the small boy, using his weight to pin him down. David unzipped his pants, grabbed Bobby by the hair, and forced his penis into the boy's mouth. Bobby tried to resist, but he had no chance. Within a matter of seconds, David ejaculated into his mouth and tossed him aside. He threatened the boy and his family and told him to never tell anyone what happened. He was 13, and he's already he did that to a, a, six-year-old. a predator. Yeah. In 1972, when David got to high school, he weighed 375 pounds. His grades were well below average, classmates were uncomfortable around him, and described him as odd. But David walked everywhere with a kingly sense of entitlement, sauntering widely, arms swinging about as though he had not a care in the world. David spent spent much of his teen years devising ways to murder other neighborhood boys. His plans didn't begin with much complexity. He attempted to lure a pair of 10-year-olds up the up to the cemetery, some friendly neighborhood kids. It nearly worked until one of them, feeling really creeped out by the situation, made up a quick lie that, quote, I hear my mother calling me home. And he forced his other not-so-willing buddy to ditch out on the idea, get the hell away from David, who, unbeknownst to them, intended on killing them and burying their bodies in the cemetery. A few weeks after that foiled plan, David's neighbor, Mrs. DuPont, discovered a pair of envelopes at her doorstep. They were addressed to her young sons. Assuming they were birthday invitations, she gave them over to her kids. But when her eight-year-old was confused by what he had opened, Mrs. DuPont grabbed the paper. What she saw sent chills up her spine. The letters had been cut out of magazines and newspapers and pasted onto the paper. The message read, Meet me in the Baker's Grove Cemetery at 6 p.m. and something good will happen to you. I will give you $20 a piece 
and don't tell your mother and father about it. The note was signed by David. The DuPonts had seven kids and were poor. David figured they wouldn't miss out on much if a few went missing. His urge to kill had not gone away. He planned to choke the DuPont boys to death under the thorn trees and then cut them up, throwing them into Lake Webster. On a summer morning, just after coming home from church with his mother, David discovered his father, Philip, dead on the living room floor. At the funeral service, David incessantly badgered the caretaker. He followed him all over the funeral, and he asked all over the funeral home, and he asked, can I see the embalming room? David wanted details of how his father's corpse was prepared. He was around 16 at the time. How do you keep a body from smelling if you don't bury it right away? How cold do you have to keep it? How long before a body gets stale? Some of the questions that David asked of the caretaker. And I'm pretty sure it's not because he has a um, an interest in, you know, funeral homework or as a, you know, mortician. Yeah, I don't think he's pursuing a mortician's career at this point. He's <laughs> gathering intel for other... Mortuary science, I think yeah. that's what it's called now. In 1975, a little more than a year after Philip's death, David told Tira he wanted to go to a school pep rally, and she let him borrow her car. Just across town, an eight-year-old boy assured his mother that he was ready to walk alone to school for the first time. She warily agreed after a thorough rundown of the rules. Stay on the path we walk every other day and do not talk to strangers. A few minutes later, the young boy was within eyesight of his school, right on the main road. A white station wagon stopped abruptly and a huge man in a blue police jacket with a golden badge emerged from the car and declared he was a policeman. Your mother has been hurt. You need to come with me right away. The boy was instantly frantic. The policeman opened the door and ordered him in. David, the policeman, buckled the child and took a visible look around before taking off. A neighborhood eavesdropper caught sight of the fat policeman from her window. Noting his clownish uniform, unmarked car, and the hysterical boy, she called police who immediately dispatched units to search for the boy. David sped down the busy street, blowing by the school crosswalk, roughly pulling the station wagon into the parking lot of a shopping center. He yelled to the boy, take your clothes off. When the child refused his order, David clenched his throat with a meaty hand and violently shook him until he nearly passed out. The tiny, terrified child desperately tried to stop David, but it was no use. David thrust his hand into the boy's pants and squeezed his genitals genitals so hard, the boy started slipping into unconsciousness, losing control of his bowels. An irate David wiped his hands on the boy's shirt and face. His other hand was still wrapped around the boy's throat. Now he began toying with him. Squeeze, let go. Squeeze, let go. Taking the boy to the brink of passing out, then forcibly shaking his head. David felt him begin to vomit, but tightened his grasp so that the child began choking. Blood was now pouring from his nose and eyes. His face was swollen. The boy thought he was going to die. Suddenly, flashing lights and a siren, the white station wagon was identified in the empty parking lot. A patrolman called for backup as he pulled in behind the vehicle. The officer leapt from his car, drew a thirty-eight revolver, and ordered David out of the vehicle. David put his hands out the window and yelled, Don't hurt me! I didn't do anything! I'm getting out! 
David was tackled and handcuffed all while screaming, I didn't do anything wrong. This was all a mistake. The boy was eventually okay, having spent several days in the hospital. David was taken in and charged with felony kidnapping, assault and battery, and sexual assault of a minor. David told officers, quote, it's a good thing I gained my composure. Otherwise, I would have killed that kid. Then, after reflecting on it for a moment, he said, I waited too long. It would have been better if I just choked the boy to death, dumped his body, and then went to school. After that, he said, I know my rights. I'm a minor. And he demanded his mother and a lawyer. He, he said that to the officers. Yep. Followed with, I know my rights. I'm a minor. Get me a lawyer. Wow. When Tira showed up, officers had no legal way to stop her from taking him since he was technically a minor. The cops tried telling her that he needed to be locked up or committed, but she wouldn't listen. David denied any knowledge of what happened and claimed he must have blacked out. About a week later, suspecting he was suicidal, Tira put him in the hospital. David was committed on April 4th, 1975 to the care of Jesse O. Arnold, M.D. at St. Vincent's Hospital for what was referred to as a, quote, loss of awareness lasting nearly three hours. In 1975, Brain imaging was rudimentary by today's standards. What they actually did was take an x-ray of the brain after injecting people with radioisotope fluids. When this process was completed on David, his brain appeared to be normal. What researchers at the time didn't realize was they were tagging the wrong molecules. Because of this, brain scans that were declared as normal were actually three to five standard deviations below the average. What this meant, in David's case, was that his frontal lobes were hardly operating, creating a condition known as hypofrontality. This meant a lot of the decision-making centers in David's mind weren't functional, particularly his perception of right from wrong, understanding consequences, and his rage toward children. There's got to be a little bit more than that, though, too. That I mean, not just that would cause this unbelievably disgusting thought process or need. Oh, for sure. You know? I, well, I think the, the treatment from his father, the violence. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah. yeah you, know, you, don't, you don't think your three-month-old kid can hear you call him BB nuts, but that's right. not the way the brain works. It's yeah. settling in there somewhere. It's, so, a, it's, a really, it's really, it's all horrific. Well, and that's, I mean, that's likely hearing that and that, that form of, of verbal abuse. I mean, his rage toward young boys. I mean, it's... David was hospitalized for 18 days. He was released on a plea agreement and placed on one year of supervised probation. He visited his officer no more than six times in that year. As part of his agreement, he was not to have contact with children. That'll be easy, said David. I don't remember doing anything wrong in the first place. David went ahead with his excitement about graduating high school. Just days before graduation... David again dressed as a police officer. The same blue coat and shiny gold badge. He pulled up next to a nine-year-old girl on a bike just down the street from her house in Hartford, Connecticut. Your mother has been in a bad accident. She needs you to come with me right away. The terrified child dropped the bike on the spot, tears rolling down her face. I just want my mommy to be okay, she said as she got in the car with the fat policeman. That is not, um, that is not just knowing right from wrong. That is planning that out. That is planning. Well, there's a methodology there. Absolutely. I mean, so telling a child that her mom 
his or her mom has been in a bad accident. That's not stupid. Oh, no. You know? No, his brain was damaged, but he was not functionally, like, handicapped or mentally mentally handicapped handicapped or anything. No, 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 definitely not. David buckled her in so tight she could hardly breathe. When the little girl started to complain, David screamed at her, shut the fuck up, ruthlessly punching her in the face over and over again as he drove. The girl began convulsing, and suddenly she vomited all over and wet her pants. David was furious. He slammed the brakes, undid her seatbelt, and violently shoved her out of the car. As David sped off, another car drove up and managed to catch his license plate. The little girl was left for dead on the sidewalk, her face a crimson puffy mask, one of her teeth barely hanging on by a nerve. She described her attacker at the hospital, and hours later, police arrested David at his mother's house. He whined loudly at how rough the cops were as they escorted him to jail, claiming he must have blacked out again. When it came to trial... The little girl's mother refused to let her testify. Somehow, the assault never got back to David's probation officer, and he was released from probation in May of 1976 with a note in his file saying how cooperative he was. Oh, come on. Oh, yeah. Is that feeling the rage? Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I will note, this is why in modern times we have children's advocacy centers. Absolutely. Thank for, thankfully yeah, for thankfully. them. David shared his high school grad photo with Tira, his mother, just one week later. His five foot seven, 375-pound mass dominates the picture. He got a job restoring furniture, but he was a shit employee and nearly got his ass kicked after attempting to corner a female worker and assault her. One place David always felt at home was church and worship service. He rarely missed a Sunday service. He was deeply religious and secretly believed he was called upon by God for a sacred mission. Complete and utter bullshit. In an effort to better understand that calling, David went to Bible college in 1976. He was accepted into Valley Forge Christian College in Green Lane, Pennsylvania. Within a few months, after a few bizarre interactions with several students, a confrontation with the preacher, and piss-poor grades, David was suspended from the school and escorted from the property by security. They bought him a bus ticket home and sent him packing. He moved back in with Tira who struggled to keep him fed. David now weighed 390 pounds. His appetite was unending. David ate everything in sight. He occasionally picked up menial jobs, but they never lasted long because he constantly threatened other employees. September 24th, 1977. A night David planned for months. That morning, when Tira fixed him breakfast, he demanded double everything. Bring me eggs and toast until I say stop, he told his mother. I need the car tonight to meet some friends. He was vague, and she thought it was strange because David didn't have any friends. Nevertheless, she agreed to let him use her green Plymouth Fury. David anxiously packed the vehicle, a stolen hunting knife, a large army duffel bag, some oiled rope, two pairs of handcuffs that he didn't have keys for, his special blue police jacket, and a new silver police badge, the most realistic badge he owned. Since moving back in with Tira, David had also become a toy collector. He even had his own booth with a pop-up tent at the local antique flea market. He decorated his booth with colorful balloons, specialized in selling toys, and made a sign offering babysitting services for busy, hard-working parents. Um, when you start murdering the kids that you're babysitting, I kind of feel like that's going to be bad for business. I don't I think he's thought that one through. Yeah, that, that's where that frontal lobe isn't quite working. Not working. Yeah. 
That night, he set his tent up with the opening flap away from the road. When his shift ended around 9, he stopped for cigarettes and made his way to the White City Theater in Shrewsbury. There were always boys leaving the late night shows. David had been there many times before, watching and planning. The two 13-year-old boys leaving the theater were entirely caught off guard when a fat policeman pulled up next to him, flashed his badge, and demanded, What are your names? Billy and Alan, the two responded. He ordered them, Get into my undercover car. I have to ask you some questions. They complied, and David took off driving down the street, lecturing them on the dangers of being out so late. In a sudden fit of rage, David smashed his fist into Alan's face, bloodying his nose. Alan started crying in confusion, wailing that he hadn't done anything wrong. David drove while yelling at the boys to keep their mouth shut. David was annoyed by their crying and constant inquiries about where they were going. Finally, David pulled off onto a gravel road, stopped the car, and took out the hunting knife. Screaming at the boys to put their hands behind their back, he tightened the handcuffs around their wrists, still inside the vehicle. David pulls out the duffel bag from under his seat and orders Billy to get in. The bag is too small. I can't. Get in there or I'll cut your legs off, he screamed at Billy. The boy tried to get in the bag, but it simply wasn't possible. Frustrated, David ripped the bag from Billy and tossed it out the window. Are you going to kill us? The boys kept asking. No. If you do what I tell you, then no, said David. He drove his car back to the main road and parked it out of sight, behind his tent at the flea market. He yanked the boys into his tent, tied them up, and ordered them to remove their clothes. When the boys refused, David was pissed. He untied them and hastily threw Billy and Alan on top of one another in the back seat. Nothing was going as he planned. David drove them around the old cemetery road near Royal Rangers campground. He yanked Alan out of the car first and instantly started to strangle him, whipping the boy's head back and forth like a ragdoll. David backhanded him hard across the face and let him fall to the ground. Lighting a cigarette, David kicked Alan in the ribs repeatedly while he smoked and flicked ashes on the boy. David was nearly out of breath now. He sat down on top of Alan resting for a moment before bouncing up and down on the boy's chest until he was unconscious. Believing Alan to be dead, David moved on to Billy in the car. The last thing Alan remembers hearing before passing out was Billy screaming as he was being choked. David wanted to break his neck. Billy's handcuffed arms hung limp as David dragged him out of the back seat. David was moving hurriedly, feeling panicked and out of breath. He opened the trunk and moved the spare tire so he could shove Billy inside without breaking his ankles. Alan opened his eyes as he heard the car driving away. He was crying, hurt, and distraught, but managed to get to his feet and limp toward the nearby campground. One building was lit. A surprised youth pastor opened the door. Alan was talking a hundred miles a minute as the pastor called the police. When the state trooper arrived and took off the handcuffs, Alan was nearing hysteria. His teeth chattered when he told the state trooper, I saw the fat policeman kill my best friend. The trooper quickly put an all-points bulletin out for the Green Plymouth. Meanwhile, David was driving around, slamming his fists angrily on the steering wheel, furious with himself for leaving a body on the side of the road. Why didn't I kick it into the bushes or throw it over a hill, he thought to himself. He slammed on the brakes and turned the car around. He had to hide the body. When David made it back to the cemetery road, 
An officer with the Carlton Police Department ID'd the car, matching the all-points bulletin. When the officer turned on his lights and siren, David put the pedal to the metal and tore off down the gravel road. David didn't get far. The cop forced him off the road into a thicket of bushes. The officer got out of his car, took a defensive position behind his door, and drew his revolver. Get out of the car and on the ground. The door opened, and David flopped out onto the gravel. When the officer approached, he heard screaming from the trunk of the car. Officers quickly secured David, got his keys, and opened the trunk to find Billy. He was handcuffed, bruised, beaten, and terrified, but he was alive. It was nearly 1 a.m., just over three hours since he was abducted. David was arrested and taken into the Sturbridge police barracks. He gave a confession that was much different than the actual crime and delivered it as though he was an officer giving a report of a crime someone else did. Oh, the creep factor. And just my my heart is... Pounding. Oh, and it's just so sad. I, I've never encountered anyone or anything so creepy in my entire life, and it only gets worse. It, oh, yay. When David appeared in court on September 24th, 1977, his bond was set at $50,000. He was charged with two counts of attempted murder, two counts of kidnapping, impersonating an officer and failure to stop. The judge ordered a psyche vow. David was transferred to the Worcester House of Correction to await trial. When psychiatrist Steve Cronin interviewed David, it only took him about 30 minutes to see David for who he was. Quote, there is no evidence to indicate David enters a disassociated state. He has strong, violent impulses toward boys. His view of himself is fragmented. There is considerable evidence for a diagnosis of psychopathic personality. Three years prior, in 1974, a 10-year-old girl had gone missing near Massapog Road in Connecticut. She was discovered when a driver noticed the tail end of a bicycle sticking out from the bushes. He pulled over, pushed back the brush, and discovered the body of young Susan Terry. Her arms and feet were bound with white cloth bandage tape. Her shorts and underwear were gone. Her face and head were severely beaten. Her neck was bruised from obvious strangulation. When police had canvassed the area, no one had seen the girl wander into the bushes. Although one driver reported a green car on the side of the road, and another witness mentioned a fat, unkempt man smoking cigarettes and leaning against a green car. When Officer Stephen Bennett interviewed David, he wasn't very cooperative, claiming he blacked out, even though he had already confessed. When the interview was nearing its end, David randomly brought up Susan Terry. Yeah, the girl who was killed with a large rock and bound in tape? Bennett was shocked. None of these details had been made public. And so the, the one who, or when he's being interviewed, this is about the, the 13-year-old boys. Yep. And then that's when, okay. Yep, exactly. During the interview when he's arrested with the 13-year-old boys. And so, yeah, he just randomly brings up this young girl who had been discovered murdered three years prior. Because this is three years prior to his arrest, that young girl's body was discovered on Massapog Road. And I'm guessing um, the who was killed with a large rock, that's a little too specific, David. Bennett confronted David who replied, quote, well, it was some kind of blunt instrument that killed her. David always used Massapog Road on his way to school. It's a beautiful drive, he said. When Officer Bennett followed up with the Sturbridge police chief, he learned a heavyset man fitting David's description was reported on the day Susan Terry went missing. Officers also found first aid boxes in David's vehicle containing the same kind of bandage tape that was used in Susan Terry's murder. 
As Bennett dug deeper into David's background, he discovered the other boys David abducted and, and assaulted. All of them had short hair, light brown or blonde. Susan Terry's hair was short enough to be mistaken for a boy. Bennett asked for a warrant to search the apartment where David lived with Tira. When police called to check if she was home, Tira told them, I'll just be out for a few hours. When police arrived two hours later, the apartment was spotless. Officers found nothing connecting David to the murder of Susan Terry. On December 14, 1977, David pled guilty to attempted murder and kidnapping. He was given the max sentence of 18 to 20 years on all counts. David spent a few years in prison before petitioning for a transfer to Bridgewater State Hospital, writing letters to anyone and everyone necessary, begging for the transfer. His mother, Tira's efforts were unyielding. She called and wrote constantly in advocacy for her son. Finally, on March 6, 1979, psychiatrist David M. Weiss recommended a full clinical evaluation at Bridgewater State Hospital. The evaluation would determine if David was a sexually dangerous person as defined by the state of Massachusetts. It's 1979 now, and with Tira's unrelenting help, David was eventually transferred full-time to Bridgewater. David would now be considered for parole in 1989 after serving a minimum of 10 years. In July of that year, psychologists Robert F. Moore and Robert Levy agreed David was a predator and an extremely dangerous person who should remain at Bridgewater State Hospital. They believed he was so dangerous and unfixable that he should never be released. But because of their report, David's sentence was changed from 18 to 20 years to from one day to life. On March 22nd, 1984, David Paul Brown changed his name to Nathaniel Bar-Jonah, citing his strong religious beliefs and desire to stand with his Jewish brothers. He wanted to know what it was like to be persecuted as a Jew. He claimed he was Jewish and wanted his name to reflect that. During his time in prison, Nathaniel Bar-Jonah, formerly known as David Paul Brown, continuously tried to prove and show he was no longer a threat to society. Time and again, psychiatrists did not agree. Bar-Jonah's files show he has a borderline personality disorder with psychopathic tendencies, grotesque fantasies of torture, dissecting people, and interest in the taste of human flesh. His progress, by most accounts, at Bridgewater State Hospital was minimal at best. He was uncooperative, didn't participate well in group sessions, and declined additional treatment opportunities. When all his efforts failed, Bar-Jonah demanded his mother find him a Christian psychologist, someone who would understand the sacrifices he made in service of the Lord, someone who could see that Bar-Jonah had been saved. The state refused to pay for outside evals, so Bar-Jonah lobbied with the court that he had a right to be evaluated by those who understood him and held no bias against him. In November of 1990, the court granted the request, and his aging mother, Tira, found a way to pay for the independent consultation. Christian psychologists Eric Schweitzer and Richard Aubert agreed to do the evaluations for the fee of $5,000 each. Throughout the interviews, Bar-Jonah lied his ass off and manipulated the two men at will. The evaluators were impressed and empathetic. Bar-Jonah weaved intricate tales of his own gang rape near his first house at the age of 10, where he claimed 
His heroic actions saved the life of his best friend, Kevin. Now, this was a complete made-up lie that Barjona told time and again throughout his whole life. This claim that he was gang-raped by a bunch of older boys, him and his buddy by the cemetery, and that he saved him and he saved his friend. Ober was specifically impressed that Barjona now had only, quote, heterosexual interests and had a pen pal fiancé who was female. This was cited as a maturing of sexual attitudes. Dawn, I wish you guys could see here, ladies and gentlemen, because she is just roiling next to me as, as, this, as this plays out. It gets worse. Bar Jonah also told them of an incident where he was gang raped and sodomized by eight black prison guards after he refused a rectal search for contraband. Bar Jonah claimed the men beat another inmate to death in his own bed and then raped Bar Jonah on the same blood-soaked mattress. The gang rape brought back the trauma from his past. And he tried to take legal action against the guards, but his efforts were unsuccessful. And he claims the legal system covered up the whole thing. Barjona's reaction to the rape was noted as adaptive. And the psychologist Ober suggested, quote, This incident demonstrates his ability to handle stress as a result of perceived sexual trauma and to control his impulses. Barjona used one lie to give value to another, and it worked to perfection. Ober concluded Barjona was unlikely to victimize others due to uncontrolled desires. The evaluator did not administer any psychological tests. Schweitzer, on the other hand, used the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, the Rorschach, and the Thermatic Apperception Test. By now, Barjona's familiarity with these tests was extensive. These same tests were conducted just a few months earlier by the state psychologists who deemed Barjona as a person of considerable danger not to be released into society. Schweitzer, however, concluded there was no evidence of, quote, a psychotic thinking style and no evidence of sadistic or aggressive preoccupation with sexual ideation. Schweitzer also said, after reviewing Barjona's records, that there was little evidence to support a sexually deviant nature. All of his assertions were the complete opposite of every prior evaluation from a psychiatric professional in Bar Jonah's life. I, I I can no longer hold this back. You've you've got to be kidding me. So I have I, I can't even I can't even come up with the words. So no no evidence of sadistic or aggressive preoccupation with sexual ideation and and his like what planet are you living on, I, dude? I think anybody can say he's got some issues and that, you know, there's definitely some some sort of oh oh my gosh this is I, I problematic just, i i just i just can't with this guy Schweitzer's conclusions year later are referred to as quote inconsistent with reason based upon thousands of pages of contradictory information in bar jonah's criminal file both the christian psychologists were impressed by his heterosexual transformation as well as bar jonah's creativity citing the board games invented while he was hospitalized. And finally, Schweitzer noted the sexual maturity and restraint following the prison guard gang rape. Okay, those guys, those guys are the ones that think that they can pray the gay away. That they're, they're the same individual, the same type of individual. Those, those, I'm sorry, those guys are assholes. Those guys are terrible. Schweitzer's final highlight, Bar Jonah's immaculate plan to relocate to Great Falls, Montana. 
to pursue patents for his board games and live with his mother, Tira. Barjona's religious faith would deter him from any future acts of violence. He declared Barjona was not a sexually dangerous person. Schweitzer and Ober agreed Barjona should be released without any qualifications or follow-ups. On February 12, 1991, Judge Walter E. Steele agreed with their assessment and ordered the immediate release of Nathaniel Barjona. I can't get into this. However, it should very much be noted. Walt, Judge Walter E. Steele, his spectacular rise to judgeship followed his role in the Dyke Bridge case, the controversial death of campaign worker Mary Jo Kopeshny, who was last seen with Ted Kennedy. The circumstances of her death were highly suspicious, and Ted Kennedy walked away scot-free. So that's the guy. Barjona was officially released on June 28, 1991. Tira, now 75 years old, picked him up. She brought Barjona fresh clothes and took him out for burgers on the way home. He ate three triple cheeseburgers, three large fries, and a handful of pastries. He washed it all down with four chocolate shakes. Barjona made an extensive number of pen pals while incarcerated, more than 300 and he insisted on calling them all, racking up phone bills exceeding a thousand bucks. They wrote huge letters back and forth and exchanged pictures of their families. August 9th, 1991. Barjona loves going for walks around lunchtime. His favorite place to stroll by? The school near his house. He loved watching the children play tag outside during recess, particularly the boys. His path to school always led him through the post office parking lot. It was raining, and he noticed the small blonde head of a little boy, Michael, peeking through the window of a car. Michael was alone. Barjona started breathing heavily, looking around. Everyone was inside, hiding from the rain, he thought to himself. Barjona opened the door, looked down at the boy, and then splashed his 300-plus pound frame on top of him. Michael let out a muffled scream, but he was nearly choking on Barjona's rain and sweat-soaked shirt. When Michael's mother emerged from the post office, she saw a fat, bearded man with stringy hair in the back seat of her car. She was there in an instant, opening the door, hitting Barjona, pulling his hair, doing everything she could to rip him from the vehicle and save her son. Barjona fled. When police arrived a few minutes later, officers taking the report recognized the description of Nathaniel Barjona. When they arrived at Tira's apartment, Barjona was happily eating a bowl of mac and cheese and watching TV. So he was released on June 28th, and it took him until August 9th. August 9th. But according to his, you know. Oh, Don, you're not done being oh, angry gosh, yet. no. You're not done being angry yet, my friend. Once at the station, Barjona penned a handwritten confession of his intent to kill Michael. He was arraigned and released on his own cognizance. Later that night, he took a cab to Michael's house. When the family noticed his arrival in the cab, they turned off all the lights, locked themselves in an upstairs bedroom, and called police. Barjona got back in the cab and left. When his case came up in court, it was immediately referred to probation. Sending Barjona back to prison was not a consideration. Judge Milton H. Raffleson was not told Barjona previously spent 15 years in prison. He was not told of the confession or of the ominous visit to Michael's house. The judge ordered a psyche eval prior to adjudication. A plea agreement was reached, and Barjona agreed to two years supervised probation and a complete psyche eval. His criminal background was never shared to the court before this agreement was made. The final detail of the plea 
was that Tira would relocate with David to Montana, where her oldest son Bob lived. Bob was thriving in Great Falls, Montana. He worked on Malmstrom Air Force Base and owned several rental properties. Bob had agreed to let Tira and David stay in one of the rentals. So we're, we're getting to the Midwest, folks. On August 22nd, 1991, the agreement was made for Bar Jonah to serve two years of supervised probation, and he'd be allowed to transfer to Montana. He was ordered to check in with his probation officer immediately following the conclusion of court. The office was on the second floor of the building. He skipped that part. He also skipped the psyche valve. Tira rented a small trailer, and the two were off for Montana within days. So when probationers relocate, there's a formal process carried out through the Interstate Compact Agreement, which manages relocation for those on probation. Most states refuse sexual or violent offenders. The agreement must be in place before relocation. In this case, no one bothered to tell Montana they were being sent a monster. The trip to Montana was long, and Bar Jonah insisted they travel to Arkansas first so he could meet his new wife-to-be, Sandy. The stops at rest areas and fast food restaurants were frequent. When the two checked into hotels, Bar Jonah disappeared at night for hours at a time while Tira slept. Now, Sandy is a mother of two sons, ages 8 and 10, and she was looking for a good man to help her raise him. When Nathaniel Bar Jonah showed up at Sandy's ramshackle trailer, he wasn't at all what she expected. Fat, smelly, rotten teeth. He had saliva crusted at the corners of his lips. Sandy's trailer was only two bedrooms. Her son shared a room and slept on bunk beds. Bar Jonah refused to share a room with Sandy because the two were not married. He declared the bottom bunk bed his own and quickly made himself at home. He stripped to his underwear and started smoking cigarettes. He told Sandy, quote, This will help me get to know our boys better. The youngest one can sleep with me. Oh my gosh. Sandy realized there was no way in hell she could be with this man. He made her skin crawl. Now, this is a woman who's had a hard life and been disappointed and let down by a lot of men, but she knew bad when she smelt it. On the second night, she sent her boys to a friend's house, and the following morning, after fixing biscuits and gravy, she told Bar Jonah, it's clearly not going to work out between us. Bar Jonah literally did not say one word. He sat there, finished eating, got up, and told Tira, we have to get going. And then they walked out the door and left. Sandy, you can find somebody different than uh, than reaching out and, and making a, a pen pal with um, somebody in prison. <sighs> the trip to Great Falls was long and arduous for Tira. Hang on. Oh, hang on. I didn't, I didn't mean that to sound the way no, it did, I, but meaning finding this rotten son of a gun. Yeah. You know? Like, oh, it's... It is, wow. So... Bar Jonah did none of the driving at all from Massachusetts to Arkansas and then from Arkansas up to Great Falls. He made a 75 year old mother do all the driving. Of course. Why wouldn't he? I think I he, mean, yeah, he's, he was too a, tired to drive. He's a stand up dude. Yeah. So long trip, really hard. And David loved the open expanse of Wyoming and Montana. It was a great wonder to him. He thought often of how easily one could disappear down a long winding road. You could drive for hours without seeing another vehicle. When they stopped at rest stops, he'd quiz truck drivers what goes where and how long he could disappear somewhere, all that. When they finally arrived to Great Falls, it was a new beginning for Bar Jonah. He and Tira would share one of the apartments owned by his older brother, Bob. Bar Jonah identified and mapped out all the schools closest to home. He was so kind and friendly to the children that teachers smiled and waved when he kept returning to the schools. 
Barjona also got his antique toys and collectibles business started at the local antique mall. When Nathaniel Barjona walked into the parole office of Michael Redpath to report for probation, Redpath was surprised. But when Barjona shared his history to the parole officer, Redpath was flabbergasted. How in the hell did you get here? He asked. Now, Redpath did his due diligence in trying to get Barjona's history, including requests for psychiatric reports, records from his time at Bridgewater, sex offender registry, all of it. He went through all the proper channels. Long story short, it really kind of looks like Massachusetts wanted to send this guy away. A probation officer from Massachusetts wrote back and said there was no psychiatric records on file, and Montana never got anything about his years in Bridgewater. The file that Montana got was paper thin. After his, you know, 300 psyche valves? They got, Montana got nothing. So against their better judgment, Redpath and his bosses agreed to accept supervision of Barjona, given how unhelpful and unresponsive Massachusetts was with Barjona's records. They had no reason to believe the East Coast state would be proactive in extraditing Barjona anyway. Redpath urged psychiatric and psychological testing, but the Massachusetts order was for a standard rules probation. Now, Great Falls was rife with overworked, lonesome mothers. That, coupled with the massive surrounding wilderness, made it a perfect hunting ground for Nathaniel Barjona. He became well-known for his friendliness. Kids loved running up to him and bouncing off his belly. Redpath didn't trust Barjona, and he didn't like him. He notified the Great Falls PD to keep an eye out on him. It was only a matter of time before he re-offended. Barjona got a letter to the Great Falls Tribune published in 1991. It read, quote, I've seen God take a hopeless situation like when all avenues were closed, it seemed like I'd never be released. Yet God told me I would, and I believed him, even though the evidence of my release was not there. Then, totally out of left field, I got two, yes, two, Christian psychiatrists who believed in me. That was a miracle in itself to find two Christians in that profession in Massachusetts. The state had a lot of, a lot of evidence on their side, yet the judge sided with me. I'm sorry, I'd like to read that one more time. The state had a lot of evidence on their side, yet the judge sided with me. Yeah. Should we spend the next 20 minutes talking about what's wrong with that? That's a whole other podcast altogether, my friend. It was uh, the following week, Barjona joined the Central Assembly of God Church. A few months later, Barjona was a leader of the Royal Rangers, the church youth group. Quote, my life is dedicated to guiding the little lambs to God, he told church leaders. Barjona went out of his way to make children at the antique mall feel comfortable. He played cars with them and often gave away his toys. And even though he was basically giving away garbage, it was really appreciated. And his selflessness was recognized by many parents. Some of them even became his friends. One such friend was Julie and her son, Sean. Barjona treated Sean like he was his own. Julie invited him over for dinner, often. And soon she learned she's also impressed by Barjona's devotion to God. Great Falls Police Department Officer Dan Nelson contacted the Assembly of God Church to warn them of Barjona. He told church leaders not to let any kids around the man. A pastor called Julie to warn her as well, but Julie was taken aback. Nathaniel is my friend, she said. In fact, he's one of my best friends. He would never harm Sean. I trust him so much, I'll be asking him to babysit Sean. Barjona babysat Sean from November of 92 to June of 93, up until Julie moved to Haver, Montana, so she could be closer to her boyfriend, Steve. Barjona made frequent trips to visit Julie and Sean. Steve hated him. 
and told Julie he shouldn't be allowed near Sean. On December 18, 1993, Julie and Steve attend a Christmas party in Great Falls and arrange for Sean to have a sleepover with Bar Jonah. Sean loved going there. Bar Jonah was fun to play with, and he never yelled at the boy. However, Sean thought it was strange when Bar Jonah insisted on going to the bathroom with him. In the week leading up to Christmas, Sean was noticeably pulling at his penis. Some friends who were over for a party noticed it too, and Julie commented how Sean had been acting up quite a bit in the recent weeks. Julie took Sean into the bedroom to talk with him. When she did, Sean wouldn't stop pulling at his penis, and he said it hurt. Julie had her son pull his pants and underwear down. She was aghast when she saw his penis was red and swollen. How long has it been like this? She asked. I don't know, Sean replied nervously. Well, we'll we'll take you to the doctor, and they'll be able to stop the itching. I don't want anyone else to touch me, the boy screamed. What do you mean you don't want anyone else to touch you? Who's been touching you? Julie asked. Nathaniel. When Julie filed the complaint complaint with Great Falls PD, Detective William Belushi was assigned the case. He was a longtime veteran who handled most of the department's sex cases. When Detective Belushi took statements from Julie and Sean, he was mortified to hear Sean relay the story Bar-Jonah told him. Bar-Jonah had told him the story that he had kidnapped and nearly killed two boys. Bar-Jonah told that that to to Sean. Sean also described in detail the horrific scar on Bar-Jonah's right leg. January 19th, 1994. Belushi shows up at Bar-Jonah's apartment and reads him his rights. Bar-Jonah denied fondling Sean. Here's what Bar-Jonah said. I didn't do it, but if I did, I must have blacked out. That's happened to me before. If I had done it, I would have just gone ahead and killed the kid. It's also possible I was having an erotic dream when we slept. Maybe I touched him while I was asleep. I'm not really sure. Barjona also admitted to kidnapping and attempted murder of a couple kids in Massachusetts. Belushi, a pretty grizzled veteran who's seen it all, was appalled. Who the fuck is this guy? He thought to himself. January 20th, 1994. Barjona is arrested at the Antique Mall. His bail is set for $25,000 and the judge initially decided Barjona was a danger to the community who should remain in jail until trial. The judge also ordered psychological and sexual offender evaluations. On March 1st, Barjona's public defender got his bail reduced to $10,000 for undue hardship. Plus, Barjona agreed he would have no association with minor children, stay with his mother, be in by 9 p.m. every night, and obey all of Montana's state laws. Judge John McCarville agreed to reduce the bail. Um, Barjona entered a not guilty plea and was able to postpone. So be in by 9 p.m. every night because bad shit doesn't happen before 9 p.m.? Guess not. Just checking. Okay. Yep. Now, this is going to be a lot to take in. Barjona's family hired a private attorney who brought on a private investigator. They convinced Julie to actually write a letter of support for Barjona. She was extremely empathetic to the trauma Barjona had faced in his life, being raped by a group of older boys when he was a kid, as well as the horrible gang rape, assault in prison. Again, lies. Additionally, Julie didn't want her son to face the trauma of testifying. Tira and Bob also got supportive letters from other members of the community, people who were willing to testify that A, Barjona was a good man, and B, Julie was not a good Christian woman, but was a slut who was out for money. Barjona failed the evaluations, and his sexual violence scores were off the charts. He also failed a polygraph and was ordered to undergo sexual offender treatment while awaiting trial. After a series of delays and through the considerable efforts of their attorney, a deferred prosecution agreement was reached. Essentially, it's an agreement by all parties that if the defendant follows the rules and doesn't get into trouble, the charges are dismissed. It was signed on April 24th, 1996. 
but no action was ever taken on the agreement. Barjona's lawyer filed for a motion to dismiss all charges due to a lack of a speedy trial. On May 29, 1996, the Cascade County Attorney's Office agreed and all charges were dismissed. It was a total mess. Julie regretted the letter and didn't want Barjona to get away without any punishment. Alas, there was nothing she could do. She packed up and moved away, fearing Barjona might seek revenge. So there was a lot of, um, real quick, there was a lot of bullshit red tape and finger pointing with that. And essentially his whole trial and situation occurred when the county attorney's office was in a period of administrative changes, newly elected officials and all that. It's not an excuse, but that's what was happening that contributed to this falling through the cracks like that. During his time in Montana prison, Barjona became best friends with 60 plus year old Doc Bauman, a lifelong pedophile who wanted to mentor Barjona. Doc's specialty was finding boys with no place to go and luring them into his home where he groomed them to become whatever he wanted. Doc and Barjona also became lovers. Doc even claimed to be an original charter member of the criminal organization NAMBLA. These two guys were horrific predators, choosing kids for specific reasons. They knew how to target them, they knew how to manipulate their vulnerabilities, and it was easy for them to spot the vulnerable children, the kids whose parents never seemed to be around, or if they were around, just too busy to notice who their kids were spending their free time with. Barjona became a master at luring children into his dominion. He easily manipulated a lot of parents. He essentially conned a whole community into believing he was some great guy just looking out for kids, particularly boys, growing up without an active father or role model in their life. In the summer of 1995, Barjona got a job as a heart at, at Hardy's as a cook. Over time, he worked his way up to the position of shift supervisor and fry cook. It was there he met and befriended Pam. Over time, the two became very close and eventually agreed to married. Pam ultimately moved into Barjona's two-bedroom apartment. and She thought it was strange that Barjona refused to sleep in the same bed with her, and she was never allowed in his room. She did respect his faith and his space. Over the years they were together, she often noted herself to herself the intense attention Barjona gave to children, particularly young boys. Sometimes he'd leave without saying anything or telling Pam where he was going, and he always told her, mind your own fucking business. On Tuesday, February 6th, 1996, 10-year-old Zachary Ramsey left his apartment for school at around 7.30 in the morning. Wearing an outfit, outfit he picked out by himself, a football jersey bearing his name in gold letters, blue jeans, and a blue denim coat with green plaid sleeves. He was excited for good guy day at school. Zachary's path to school led him down an alley that crossed several streets. Now, this was a clean, nice alley. Not like what you're not like, oh, rats and scariness. People took care of this area. Nice yards, right? And he was well known and well liked by the many neighbors who were often outside during his walks to school. Several of them saw Zach on his way to school that day. Few witnesses even remember seeing a fat man in the alley that same morning. Zach Ramsey never came out the other end of that alley. At 9 a.m., Zach's mom, Rachel Howard, you're going to love her, got the news her son wasn't in school. They wanted her to come there right away. Rachel first went home to see if Zach was there. She also walked the entire alleyway, calling his name. It was 10 a.m. before she arrived at Whittier School, and police were already there. Rachel gave a play-by-play of her morning and returned home in case Zach returned. When Detective William Belushi arrived at Rachel's house, she was wearing sunglasses to hide a bruise on her eye. She told Belushi it was nothing to worry about. It happened a few nights ago during rough sex with her boyfriend Carl. 
Carl was a married man, but after he and Rachel became involved, Rachel insisted they live together. She actually went to his house where his wife and kids were and more or less forcibly relocated Carl to her house. Belushi also learned Zach had been pushing Rachel to get him an older friend. He wanted an adult male in his life. Zach's father, Franz, was a master sergeant stationed in Colorado Springs. Franz didn't have much of a relationship with his son, and the dispute between Franz and Rachel over Zach and of his child support was an extremely bitter feud over the years. They were just about ready to go to court again. Rachel told Belushi, quote, A few nights ago, Carl took Zach to the park, and he had Zach show him the path he took to school. I thought it was strange because Carl has never been interested in Zach. Belushi immediately suspected Bar Jonah and dispatched units at 11 a.m. to his apartment for questioning. The blinds were drawn and nobody answered the door. At 1.40 p.m., Franz Ramsey, Zach's father, arrived at Great Falls. Rachel picked him up at the airport and the plan was for them to take a routine polygraph test at the Great Falls PD. The divorced coupled the, the divorced couple argued with and accused one another the whole time. Franz told Belushi, Rachel's fucking crazy. I don't know how, but I know she's responsible for Zach's disappearance. At 2.30 p.m., Belushi was still suspicious of Bar Jonah, so he drove there himself. But again, no answer. Unbeknownst to him, Bar Jonah had just gone to the convenience care center across the street from his apartment. Bar Jonah had injured his left index finger and had a sore right leg. Bob, Barjona's brother, and his wife Jill heard the news reports that day about the missing boy. They also became suspicious. So that day, the day of Zach Ramsey's disappearance, Bob went to Barjona's apartment around 4 p.m. He wasn't there, but the apartment was a total mess. The bathtub was dirty, was full of mud and twigs. Muddy footprints were everywhere in the house. Bob was pissed. He had just replaced the flooring, so he cleaned the entire mess up. Hey, hey, Bob. Um, if you're suspicious and you see all of this stuff, maybe you don't clean it up. Just a thought. A neighborhood search sprung into action. Zach's picture was plastered all over the news stations and the calls to action were blared on the radio stations. Belushi asked Rachel to appear on the evening news to make a plea for Zach's safe return. When camera crews arrived at the agreed time, Rachel wasn't there. Belushi found her inside her apartment, putting on makeup. She told Belushi, quote, I'm not going on television unless I look my best. That comment that comment stuck with Belushi over the years. It really pissed him off. And Rachel didn't really seem upset or distraught. On Wednesday, February 7th, FBI Special Agent James Wilson joined the case. He and Belushi drove together to Rachel Howard's apartment. As they were driving up, they saw Rachel's two youngest children, ages two and four, playing unattended a block away from home. It was an unsettling sight. When Agent Wilson vocalized his concern to Rachel, she said, Oh, the kids will be fine. I'm checking on them. Even though she clearly had no idea where they were. Her apathetic attitude made the two men really suspicious. She was either involved in her son's disappearance or she was just really stupid. Belushi canvassed the neighborhood while FBI Agent Wilson interviewed Rachel. He asked her about the kind of men she dated. Rachel looked at Wilson and said, Let me tell you one thing. I would never even consider dating a man unless he let me give him a blowjob first. Huh? Agent Wilson tried to focus on her missing son. When investigators Hang went... I'm, I'm... How is... How, how is, is this, this happening? How is this story even possible? Don, it gets crazier. I, I can't. I can't. Oh. 
You're about to. When investigators went through Zach's room, not much notice was given at the time to the drawings in his notebooks. He drew football players and jerseys, moments from his life. In some of his drawings, the crotch of a player was bloody. The genitals in some spots were cut out with a knife. A knife with droplets of blood dripping from the blade was found on another page. There also appeared to be drawings from someone else and words that looked like coded writing. Two days later, Rachel received a phone call from a stranger claiming to have information about who took Zach. She was instructed to meet at Paris Gibson Park at 10 p.m., but Rachel was exhausted from the strain of Zach's disappearance, fell asleep, and missed the meeting. She didn't think it was important to tell Detective Belushi. All right, I am going to be the last person to judge a mother for how they mother because, you know what, we're all just trying to figure it out, right? This, I'm, I'm judging. I'm judging hard. You're going to judge harder, oh, my friend. No. I, the question of whether or not Rachel knew Bar Jonah was at the forefront of Detective Belushi's mind. Rachel and her kids were members of the same church, and Zachary had been a Royal Ranger when he was younger. Belushi called Rachel to ask her if she'd come down and look at some photos. When she refused, Belushi brought the picture to an apartment an hour later, but Rachel said she had never seen Barjona in her life. After investigators learned Rachel was late for college the morning of Zach's disappearance, and given her colorful history as well as her nonchalant attitude, she became a prime suspect. They grilled her several times during the investigation, and Rachel took multiple polygraph tests, which she passed. Bloodhounds were brought in. They were taken to several areas of suspicion. One of those was the residence of Carl de Kooning, Rachel's ex-boyfriend, but the hounds didn't alert anywhere on his property. About a year after Zach's disappearance, Carl put a shotgun to his chest and pulled the trigger. It blew out one of his lungs through his back, but somehow he lived. A year after that, Carl got drunk and drove his truck 80 miles per hour down a gravel road, flipped it, and landed upside down in Belt Creek. When cops got there, they found Carl's head bobbing up and down along the bank. When Rachel received a phone call from a pair of local psychics, Darlene and Dolores, offering their help to find Zach, she couldn't resist. Rachel went to the psychic reading with the sheriff and the session was recorded. It only took a few moments for Darlene to see Zach in a car near Judith Gap, Montana. Also, she saw perhaps he was near Dearborn. Most importantly, the two psychics felt strongly, as did Rachel, that Zach was still alive. The police, the FBI, and the bloodhounds searched the areas for more than three weeks, but never found anything and the dogs never alerted. The ladies, the psychic ladies, conducted daily readings for Rachel for the next two weeks they developed an overwhelming sense that Zach was being held near Dearborn. Dearborn was a pretty desolate, rugged, and heavily wooded area. Rachel went on a crazy trip up the mountainside in a car that she shouldn't even have been trying to drive up the mountain. It's all according to her. She got stuck, and then she got saved by a woodsman who refused to give her his name, but offered to take her up through some of the dry cabins to look for her son. Rachel claims in one of the cabins that she found Zach's markers, but forgot to take them. Rachel's disillusionment with the reality of Zach's disappearance reaches considerable heights of conspiracy. The psychic ladies and Rachel went looking for Zach almost daily for two years. They put over 100,000 miles on their vehicle and never charged Rachel for anything. During that time, their phones were allegedly tapped and... They claimed to have always been followed by unmarked black Suburbans. 
They also claim that once a suburban tried to run them off the road, and when their vehicle got ran off the road, it flipped in the air. But angels came down to protect them when the car was flipping and miraculously turned the vehicle onto its wheels, preventing a catastrophic crash. Okay. Over time, Rachel's primary suspect became France. She believed the government helped France take her son and was helping him hide Zach. Over that same period of time, the FBI agent in charge felt strongly that Rachel was their prime suspect. After six months, the case was completely cold. Rachel was brought in and interrogated for over six hours. She was polygraphed again, and a homing device was placed on her vehicle. They believed she would lead them to Zach's body. In 1997, Rachel appeared on the Montel Williams show. He essentially grilled her and all but accused her of killing Zach. By now... Rachel was entirely convinced the FBI, the Grand Forks PD, and France were part of a child kidnapping and pedophile ring. She actually never believed her ex-boyfriend Carl was dead, that his death was made up to get him out of the picture. Also in 1997, another boy named Zach Ramsey, who looked eerily similar to Rachel's son and had the same birthday was also born in Montana, was filmed in 1997 in Italy. A couple on an Air Force base saw the reports about Zach Ramsey's disappearance and they made a call to the Grand Forks Police Department reporting Zach Ramsey as being alive in Italy. When Rachel saw the video footage, she was convinced it was her son. The FBI fingerprinted the boy, ran his DNA and his dental records against her son, Zach Ramsey's, and none of it matched. But to Rachel, this was positive proof that France and the government had done it all and had taken her son as part of a pedophile ring and hid him from her. That is positive proof proof in Rachel's unwell mind, basically. It's and- some weird changeling stuff, though. Well, yeah, I mean, I get it. It's bizarre. I, get it. I could see that. Because this other Zach Ramsey was born in Butte, Montana, and her son was born in Great Falls. Same sure. birthday. They look alike. I mean, also I named Zach Ramsey, but Zach Ramsey, who disappeared, was Zach with a CH. This was Zach with a K. And that's easy to switch. I mean, I can see that. However, but how must the parents of Zach with a K feel? Like, pretty weird. Right? I mean, you know, you have to prove. I'm sorry, what are the of odds of this? Uh, yeah. It's. I can see why it would be it would be suspicious for sure or suspect at least. But also, I mean, Rachel does not seem well. No. And frankly, Don, Rachel could not have been more wrong. The truth of her son is more horrific than she'll ever be willing to admit. Pam rarely saw Bar Jonah between January 26th and February 16th. So that was during the time that Zach Ramsey disappeared. She went to his house, pounded on his door a couple of times. and was they, Aren't they married? They don't live together? Uh, not yet. They oh. eventually move in together. Oh, Sorry, okay. this is in January okay. to February. They end up moving in oh, in gotcha. August. Okay, okay. It's, Sorry. It, it yep. jumps around a little bit. It's a fair question. It jumps around a little bit because we got to go through everything with Rachel. Right. And then we're coming and back coming around. Back. Okay, okay. And it's so, very Quentin Tarantino. I'm now, oh, I'm yeah. now back. Okay. Yeah, it was, I, went, I went over and over on how I should do that. <laughs> it's, it was really hard to determine. But yeah, ultimately, so this is January to February. 
before they move in and eventually they move in in August. Okay, but, gotcha. So she shows up, she, she pounds on his door a couple of times and when he answers, he's really pissed and he chases her off. She never lets him in. On February 17th, Pam and Bar Jonah had dinner with Tira. At the time, she didn't think much of it when Bar Jonah brought up Zach Ramsey out of nowhere during dinner. He said to her and his mother, quote, someone probably chopped him up and threw him all over the forest. No one will ever find him. Pam was just happy to have the love of her life back, and her mind was filled with thoughts of their pending marriage. Oh, Pam, why do you think this boy is the, the this, this horrific man is the love of your life? I mean, love is love. I totally get that, but ay ay ay. Yeah. In the in Christmas later that year of 1996, Barjona made a pot of his self-proclaimed famous chili, made from a deer that he said he killed, butchered, wrapped, and cooked himself. Pam and his mother Tira hastily ate theirs, commenting that it tasted sweet. Other neighbors who he served it to couldn't finish theirs. One friend told him the meat tasted rotten. In fact, over that summer, Barjona made burgers for several cookouts. A lot of people thought the food tasted strange. In the spring of 1997, Barjona turned one of Bob's garages, his brother Bob, turned one of his garages into what Barjona called, quote, a paradise for children. It was packed full of toys, and he built an amateur puppet theater stage. This is for all the kids in the neighborhood. Now they'll come to me, Barjona proudly told his mother. Oh my gosh. I can't even. Ugh. You just can't even. You can't even. Every Saturday afternoon, it was a puppet, it was puppet theater with Mr. Popcornhead. The kids loved it, and parents dropped their children off to see their performances. Some parents even stuck around to watch. The event grew so popular, it would sometimes swell into the street, disrupting traffic. Pam felt like his magnetic pull toward children became even more brazen in the months following Zach Ramsey's disappearance. Barjona also left more and more frequently for solo trips to antique shows. He'd pack a trailer up with toys and drive into Canada and neighboring states. In July, of 1997, he moved out of the apartment with his mother and into his own two-bedroom basement apartment. Pam wanted desperately to move in with the man she loved, and her lease was up. Barjona eventually agreed. He ordered Pam to never go in his room, and he always locked it before leaving. And Barjona's apartment always had a funky odor to it. He was a sweaty, filthy, unclean man who chain-smoked. But when the funky smell began to creep beyond his apartment door, neighbors took note. Every time the door opened from Bar Jonah's apartment, the smell of death and rotting meat clung to the air for hours. Bar Jonah told one neighbor he was a hunter and he had butchered some animals in his apartment. In the fall of 97... Barjona met a transient woman passing through Great Falls, a down-on-her-luck woman looking for a new start. Her name was Sherry. She was starving and out of gas. When she saw how well the kind, fat man handled customers and children at the antique mall, she approached him about buying her stuff. Sherry spoke so rapidly of her miserable life, Barjona could barely keep up. 
I feel sorry for you, Bar-Jonah said. I've also dealt with great suffering throughout my life. A devout man should offer shelter and comfort to those without. He told her she could move in that very day. So it was September when Sherry moved in. Walking into his apartment was an assault on her senses. It wasn't just the smell. It was the decor. It was like Christmas in September. Thousands of angel decorations along with garland and lights adorned the walls. Nativity scenes and statues of Jesus and Mary were on literally every table. Clearly, she thought, I've come to the home of a good Christian man. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, good good Christian man. Totally, 100%. You can imagine Pam's surprise when she got home and was led into her apartment by her new roommate. When Pam protested, Barjona told her, if you don't like it, you can move out. Well, Pam didn't move out. The entire situation was uncomfortable, but for Sherry, she was just happy to have a warm, dry place to sleep and some hot food. She didn't think much of it when Pam stormed out crying. After Pam left, Bar Jonah called Sherry to the table. I have a story to tell you, he said. Please sit. He lit a cigarette and he began to tell her the dark, twisted, murderous story of Zachary Ramsey, the old man and the policeman. Sherry didn't realize it at the time, but what Bar Jonah was about to tell her was actually a confession. As she heard his story, she thought it was just some strange and psychotic tale. When he relayed the story to her, he never referred to himself as part of the story. It was always the old man, the policeman, and Zach. Zachary Ramsey's neighbor was a nice, funny little old man with a colorful fence, one who was always welcoming and kind to lost boys. Aside from Zach's name, again, when Barjona relayed this story, he always used the character names, the policeman and the old man, when in fact, the policeman was Barjona, and the old man was the vicious pedophile, Doc Bauman. I forgot about him. Barjona's good old buddy and lover from Montana prison. Barjona's self-proclaimed mentor. Zachary had befriended Barjona over time. It was Barjona who bought him the black spiral-bound notebook that was discovered in his room with the horrific drawings. Barjona gave Zach the attention his mother and her numerous boyfriends never could. Zachary was surprised that an undercover policeman was patrolling the alleyway. I'm just here to keep the kids safe, Barjona told him. Zachary always walked down the same alley to get to school. Doc Bauman and Barjona got into a sick, twisted, and angry feud over Zachary. When Zach stopped spending time with Barjona in favor of going into Doc Bauman's house after school, Barjona was pissed. They both wanted the boy to themselves. Eventually, they agreed to share Zachary, and Zachary would only go into Doc Bauman's house when Barjona was there. Zachary used to take long rides in the policeman's car. They went together all over the place because Zach's mom never knew where he was. Barjona gave him gifts. Sometimes they even took naps together. But Barjona became jealous when Zach started going to Doc's house more and more. And Zach refused to listen when Barjona told him 
To stop going to the old man's house, the boy had to be punished. It was Bar-Jonah who took Zachary that fateful morning, right at the end of the alleyway near the dumpsters. Zachary got in because he knew Bar-Jonah, the policeman. But this time, when Zachary got in the vehicle, Bar-Jonah used a stun gun on him and then slipped an oiled noose around his neck. Zachary was unconscious in moments. Bar-Jonah rigged the oiled noose with the seatbelt, so all he had to do was pull on the rope and it would choke the boy unconscious. When Zach tried to wake up, Bar-Jonah yanked the rope hard and forced him to pass out again. Bar-Jonah drove to a cabin near Holter Lake. It was owned by an old church friend who rarely used the place, and he had access to the spare key. When he lifted Zach out of the car and into the cabin, Zach fought. He fought with everything he had bending Bar-Jonah's fingers back and twisting. Bar-Jonah yanked the noose so hard it pulled Zachary off his feet. He dropped 10-year-old Zach and punched his face again and again, bouncing Zach's head off the wooden floor. With Zachary unconscious, Bar-Jonah went back to his vehicle to get a sheet of plywood and oiled rope. He brought it inside, rolled Zach onto the plywood. Zach was groggy, his nose was broken and bleeding, and his eyes were swollen shut. Bar-Jonah removed all of Zach's clothing, bound his hands and feet with silver tape, and tied him tightly to the plywood with oiled rope and gagged the boy with his own underwear. Once that was complete, Bar-Jonah took the rope from the noose, ran it down the back of the board, and came up underneath the plywood, tying the other end to Zach's ankles. That way, if he struggled on the plywood, he'd choke himself. An oily rope is always best, Bar-Jonah told Zach as he wrapped the boy up. That way... The knots won't slip. Once it's tied, it stays tied. Then he raped Zachary. When he was finished, Bar-Jonah whispered into Zach's ear, I'm taking you to the land of the skulls. When Bar-Jonah tipped the plywood and dragged it out the door, it left drag marks along the wooden floor of the cabin. The fat man was tired from the exertion, and Zachary was awake now, attempting to squirm and struggle on the board. Bar-Jonah was amused at the struggling, dragging the plywood a short ways to the small beach near the cabin. It was a frosty February morning. Bar-Jonah pulled a a staghorn handle hunting knife from inside his jacket and started stabbing Zachary. He cut the tendons. He cut the tendons in Zach's arms and legs so he could no longer squirm. Then he slammed the knife into Zach's armpit, penetrating the plywood behind him. A fury took over and he stabbed Zach in the chest again and again the knife striking the plywood with each blow. Zachary was gurgling now, and the gag in his mouth was red. Barjona finished it by slitting Zach's throat. Barjona then filleted pieces of human flesh from Zachary's flanks, shoulders, ribs, and rump. He took part of the arm and shoulder bones to roast for a stock. He cut Zach up with a handsaw and tossed the boy's body parts along with his favorite knife out into the lake. He rinsed the plywood as best as he could in the water and took it back with him. Clean the cabin up, bag Zach's clothes, and returned home that night. When he finished the story, Sherry, Sherry was in tears and in shock as Bar-Jonah looked her in the eyes and said, The police will never find the body because there is no body to find. I'm, I'm sick to my stomach. Um, that is, it's a child. Nobody deserves that, but it, it's a child who just wanted to be loved. Who just mm-hmm. who struggled at home, and went with the first people that paid attention to him. 
and they were monsters. The monsters don't even cut it. That's pure evil. So, and monsters who knew what they were doing. It's like it, people don't get with these with these guys. They know what they're doing. They are smart at it. It's 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 a it's it's terrible. But you think of the best fishermen you know that always knows where the walleye are, always knows where to get whatever. This is what these guys are. They know. They look for it. They sense the vulnerabilities. They see the the parents who are struggling, who aren't paying attention, and they they know how to manipulate and press on the vulnerabilities of their prey. And their prey are children. I I can't imagine, I can't imagine what that sweet, oh, what was going through that sweet baby's head. I, I, I. It might shock you to learn that Sherry stuck around after that, and shit got more weird. Barjona started on thawing meat from the freezer and making spaghetti and other meals for his friends and neighbors. The smell was putrid beyond measure, a stench of death and rotting meat. Once, when Sherry had some time at the apartment to herself, she decided to give it a good deep clean. It was the least she could do. When she cleaned the hallway closet, Sherry discovered a blue denim jacket with green plaid sleeves, a pair of small shoes, and a plastic bag filled with the clothes of a young boy. When she confronted Barjona about the clothes, he threatened her, told her to mind her own business. The next day when Barjona left, she snooped into his room, prying open the lock. The stench of the apartment was nothing compared to the reek of Barjona's room. She gagged as she walked toward his closet. Inside, she saw a rope, a blue nylon jacket, gardening shoes, gloves that looked dirty and bloody, and in the back of the closet, behind the clothes, was a four-by-six-foot piece of plywood. It looked crusty and was full of holes. In late October, Bar Jonah informed Sherry and Pam that he was going out on a road trip, not to bother asking him where. He checked into a dingy motel on the outskirts of Gillette, Wyoming at about 8 p.m. on October 12th. He was next seen at an antique mall in Billings at around 2 p.m. the following day, October 13th. He was home in Great Falls by 9 p.m. that night. On October 13th, Amanda Dawn Jillian disappeared in Gillette, Wyoming. She was last seen heading to school at 7.15 a.m. She was 5'2", weighed around 100 pounds, and had short, blonde hair and was often mistaken for a boy. How old was Amanda? She was about 10 years old, 10, 12 years old. I don't have that in here. Yeah, she was around 10 or 12 years old. Um, Somewhere between home and school, she vanished. Her bicycle was found thrown alongside the road on I-90. No trace of her has ever been found. They suspect him, obviously. Yes. Yes. They, they, they suspect him in abundance, but there's, there's well, zero evidence. Yeah, he made it very clear. That he was there. He was there that night. He was there that night in the morning. She was gone. On October 27th, Bar Jonah, Pam, and Sherry got into a huge fight. It was the last straw, and Sherry decided it was time to get the hell out of Dodge. But before she left the city, she called Detective Belushi. Sherry found his card in a desk drawer when she was prowling. She met with Detective Belushi and Officer Redenbach. She sat in their car for nearly an hour, relaying to them the story of the policeman and the old man, the one Barjona had told her. Sherry ranted a lot about Barjona's relationship with Pam, alleging Pam must have been in on it all or 
at least complicit in knowing what Barjona was really up to. The longer they listened to Sherry, the crazier they thought she was. The officers thanked her for the information as she got out of their unmarked car. Belushi decided there was no need to follow up on the story Sherry had given them. Well, can you imagine how insane that must sound? I mean, I'm hearing you read this from reports. And I'm like, there's no freaking way. How is this even possible? I will say there were some conflicting reports about Belushi's focus or lack thereof on Barjona. When Barjona didn't appear on any sex offender lists, it really threw off all the suspicion. Alleged, and he had a good, quote unquote, good reputation in the community. Allegedly, Belushi attempted to apply for warrants on more than one occasion in the initial months following Zach Ramsey's disappearance, but was never able to get them approved. So there are, again, some conflicting reports about that. Uh, I think overall, Belushi's pretty well respected. He's a good man. He's, he was a detective behind solving a lot of big time cases. Either way, Bar Jonah's reign of terror went on for several more years. On December 13th, 1999, Nathaniel Bar Jonah was arrested near an elementary school for impersonating a police officer. He had been identified around the school several times. Patrolman's like, okay, this guy's weird. We're going to check him out. When Barjona was arrested, he was wearing a dark blue jacket and a black knit beanie. He was also carrying two cans of pepper spray, a toy gun, and an authentic but fake badge. Belushi pressed to file charges. Evidently, some of his colleagues were skeptical, but the attorney general backed him, and Barjona was charged with carrying a concealed weapon and impersonating a police officer. A warrant was issued for his house and his mother's house. Agents found more impersonating materials, and during the search, they also discovered a pulley in Barjona's kitchen, photo albums with cutouts of children, and numerous documents about bondage and autoerotic asphyxia. A second warrant was issued for any documents or photographic material. The gruesome, bizarre discoveries were abundant. Nathaniel Barjona had more than 3,500 pictures and cutouts of children, mostly young boys. There were dozens of newspapers and clippings of Zachary Ramsey. They discovered undeveloped film that actually turned out to be sexual images of Barjona and three young boys. One of those boys, they were his upstairs neighbors, would later testify that he was sexually tortured by Barjona. He was hung by the neck on the kitchen pulley torture strangulation device. Barjona masturbated while the boy nearly died. A book was discovered that was entirely written in code. The book was sent to the FBI. It took them over six months to crack the cipher. It was, among other things, a cookbook containing recipes such as little boy pot pie, french fried kid, little boy stew, and lunch on the patio with roasted child. It also described torture methods and contained dozens and dozens of names. Of of the names identified on the list, all were still alive, although many, if not all of them, were victims of Barjona's sexual abuse. Investigators found a large stained piece of plywood that had been scrubbed with bleach. It had been struck by a knife, possibly even a meat cleaver, and was likely used as a cutting board. A luminol test in that room revealed the word TITA, T-I-T-A, had once been written on the floor. 
It's believed to be linked to James Tita, a 15-year-old boy whose body was found raped and strangled in New Hampshire in 1973. Human hair was found in Barjona's meat grinder. The garage at his brother Bob's house, where Barjona had his grandiose puppet shows, was excavated. Agents uncovered more than 21 bone fragments. DNA testing showed the hair and bones were not all from the same person. They also confirmed none of it was Zach Ramsey. In July of 2000, Barjona was charged with three counts of sexual assault, one count of aggravated kidnapping, and one count of assault with a weapon. That was for the three boys upstairs who were his neighbors. Barjona was also charged with the kidnapping and murder of Zachary Ramsey. Prosecutors sought the death penalty. In a really, really, really sad twist of fate, Rachel Howard, the mother of Zachary Ramsey, refused to testify in favor of the prosecution and instead threatened to take the stand in defense of Nathaniel Barjona because she knew her son wasn't really dead, so it was impossible that Barjona could have killed him. As a result, prosecutors had no choice but to drop those charges. And so much mental health issue. How hard is that to hear? Oh my gosh, like she... On February 25th, 2002... The jury found Barjona guilty on one count each of sexual assault, aggravated kidnapping, and felony assault. Not guilty on one count of sexual assault and was deadlocked on another count of sexual assault. The court sentenced Barjona to Montana State Prison for 10 years for aggravated kidnapping, 100 years for sexual assault, and 20 years for felony assault. The sentences are to be served consecutively with no possibility of parole. Although investigators will never and would never be able to prove it with evidence in a trial. Many believe Barjona to be responsible for the disappearance of dozens of children all over the Midwest and even into Canada. Barjona was never convicted of murder. He died of heart complications in 2008. In 2011, Zachary Ramsey's father, Franz, pushed the Montana court system to declare his missing son dead. In spite of Rachel Howard's protests, the court agreed, and Zachary Ramsey was officially declared dead in 2011. This is Whew. this is the I, I I can't look you in the eye right now because I'm trying to hold it together. Like this is um, this is by far the worst the worst case we have ever covered. Oh my gosh! Every stereotype and fear that you have as a parent it comes from this is it, it, represented right in right here, here. In one a fake person. policeman in one person. so many times slipping through the system and i think it's important to note how many times we've discussed the laws that have changed our lives and the way that that shit like this is policed and investigated this is why it's it's guys like this one of the most horrific killers ever the primary source for this uh, podcast is the book. It's actually a trilogy of books called Eat the Evidence by John E. Espy, PhD. It's comprised of thousands and thousands of hours of research and interviews with witnesses, victims, investigators, and even Bar Jonah himself. Wow. Additional sources 
caselaw.finelaw.com, murderpedia.org, greatfallstribune.com, history.com, and peopleofhistory.com. Once again, this is Midwest Murder. We are brought to you today by Shots Crossroads, Minot's legendary truck stop. Please hit them up. Let them know you appreciate their support of this podcast, as well as to the Domestic Violence Crisis Center, Minot. That's the DVCC Minot. If you or someone you know is currently being impacted by domestic violence, please reach out. Courage for Change. Courage, the number four, change.org or the crisis line, 701-857-2200. Thank you.